Well, good morning. I'm Bill. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't gotten to meet you either in person or online, we're excited to look at this passage together this morning. Let's pray. God, as we come to these words that Jesus, you spoke, and then these other words that Father, you inspired, or Spirit, you inspired the Apostle John to write for us, we pray that you would touch us through them, that you would change us, that you would, by grace, make us different people, because we've seen Christ this morning. God, we would see Jesus. Do that in us, we pray, in his name. Amen. So poor Leon Lett, if you know that name, it's from Super Bowl Twenty-Seven. And Leon Lett, playing for the Dallas Cowboys, almost set the Super Bowl record for the longest fumble return. He rumbled 63 of 64 yards to the end zone, upon which he slowed down at about the couple-yard line and started celebrating too early and didn't see Buffalo Bills receiver Dan Beebe, who had apparently taken to heart the maxim that you never give up on a play. And so at the one-yard line, Beebe strips the football from Leon Lett. It's a touchback. Sorry, Dallas Cowboys, no seven points. Sorry, Leon Lett, who was a great football player. No Super Bowl record. Now, Leon Lett still got a ring. He was probably okay at the end of it. But history's replete with times where we get our timing wrong whether it's Lett in Super Bowl XXVII celebrating too early, whether it's the Chicago Tribune's famous headline, Dewey defeats Truman, whether it's countless number of relationships that didn't work out because the timing wasn't right. It's very, very easy to get the timing wrong and blow the whole thing up. It happens in relationships. It happens in business. It happens in politics. It happens in the church. But in our passage this morning, these people come and they say, sir, we would like to see Jesus. And when they say that, Jesus says, now is the right time. Not too early, not too late. Now is the right time for him to go to the cross. The apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 verse 6, he says, at just the right time Christ died for us. And as we come to these words, we're really coming to what we call Holy Week, going from today that we call Palm Sunday all the way through Easter next Sunday. And we're going to watch how this works out. Today we'll sort of get a summary of the whole thing, but then we'll get to celebrate it through Thursday, through Friday, through Sunday as we see the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so this morning with John 12, here's what we see, here's what we find we find that because Christ died for us at just the right time, we can live for him. Because Christ died for us at just the right time, we can live for him. And we're going to look at this just by asking three questions of our text this morning. First, who? Second, what? And third, why? But before we jump into that, we probably should do some background because we're jumping in right in the middle of the Gospel of John. In fact, we're jumping in right at the turning point of the book. The entire book until now, the first 11 and a half chapters, has been getting us ready for this moment. So to give you a brief summary of it, if you were to look backwards in your Bible and go back to John chapter 2, right after Jesus has called his 12 disciples, 
he performs his first miracle. If you go to weddings, you often hear it mentioned because it's at a wedding in Cana. And something embarrassing happens. They start to run out of wine. Jesus' mother looks at him and says, could you fix this? And his response is fascinating. He says, why do you involve me? It's not yet my time. But then he actually goes ahead and does it, and his disciples put their faith in him. And then from chapter 3 through 4 through 5 through 6, you see both escalating belief in Jesus as more and more of the Jews who are of Jesus' own race come to believe in him, but also escalating rejection as more and more come to deny him and turn away and think he's a threat. And this goes through the chapters until chapter 11, now at a village not far from Jerusalem called Bethany, Jesus goes and he raises a guy named Lazarus from the dead. And by the end of chapter 11, so many of the Jews have put their faith in him that the religious establishment, the leaders, say, we have got to put a stop to this. And since nothing else has been working, they start plotting how to kill him. Now in chapter 12, right before our passage, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. People are crying out, Hosanna, glory to him who comes in the name of the Lord. They're pulling down palm branches and waving them for Jesus. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. And in this kingly entry he has to Jerusalem, the people think it is time. He is our Messiah. Here we go. And at this point, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders say verse 19, the verse before we pick up with our text, they say, This is getting us nowhere. The whole world's coming to him. And then these guys show up and they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. And this is the turning point. It's at this moment Jesus says, Now it's time. Now it is time for the Son of Man to be lifted up. In other words, this is it. This is about to kick off what will be the only the last week of Jesus' life, but the last half of the Gospel of John. And when Jesus declares that, it turns the book towards the last week of his life, towards his death and his resurrection. Um, John's book, you could say it's kind of like this. Um, Disney's The Lion King. Now, that's the epitome of of animated movies for me. And you've got the tragedy of Mufasa's death, You've got the just rollicking joy of Hakuna Matata. You've got Simba's return. But for me, none of those are the greatest scene in the movie. To me, the scene I love is this incredibly brief little scene where Rafiki, the baboon, catches a couple feathers or fur or something blowing on the wind and he, he smells them. He looks at them in a bowl and he suddenly goes and he realizes Simba is alive and Simba is grown and he jumps and he goes, It is time! It is time. And that kicks off the second part of the movie where everything happens that makes all things right again. And in a sense, that's what happens here in the middle of chapter 12. When these people come, Jesus says, now it's time. And it kicks off the second part of his life, one week, but a half of the Gospel of John, where we learn about his last week of his life, his death, his resurrection from the dead, what we'll celebrate over this week until Easter Sunday next week. So let's look at our text and let's ask our three questions. So John chapter 12, first, who? Who are these folks and why does that matter? So you'll notice that verse 20 
says that these are some Greeks. Now, we ought to know that to say these are Greeks doesn't necessarily mean they're from the Greek peninsula, the Ionian peninsula. This term could mean people from anywhere in the Greek-speaking world that had been once conquered by Alexander the Great, but importantly, not Jews. And these Greeks, it says, have gone up to the feast. Now, gone up is actually a literal thing. Jerusalem was at the top of a small mountain. And so they have gone up to the Passover feast. And as they are there, the text says they come to see Jesus. Now, it's important that it calls them Greeks, not proselytes. So what this probably means is that these are people who are called God-fearers. And what the God-fearers were, were Gentiles, non-Jews, who were attracted by the Jewish law, the moral system, and they were attracted even by monotheism, but they hadn't been ready to go through what it took to become ethnically Jewish, particularly circumcision. But they've come up to worship. And when these Greeks come and they say, we want to see Jesus, we don't know why. Had they heard about the cleansing of the temple? Um, They could have been from as close as the Decapolis, which would have meant they could have heard what was going on in Galilee. But for some reason they came and they say, we want to see Jesus. Now, we need to read this all against the pervasive racism of their world. Um, Not just racism of Jew against Gentile or Gentile against Jew, but of every subtype of Gentile against each other. The racism that still pervades our world was absolutely what pervaded their world. And yet, these guys come to Philip and they say, Sir, we'd like to see Jesus. Now, we don't know either why they picked Philip. He's got a Greek name, so maybe that's it, though he himself wasn't a Greek. Um, Maybe the text is hinting when it tells us he's from Bethsaida, because that was up in Galilee. Galilee had a Jewish population, but it was predominantly Gentile in its population. We don't know exactly why, but they come and he says, huh, I don't know what to do about this. He goes and finds Andrew. They go together to Jesus and Jesus says, this is it. Not all the miracles, not all the healings, not all the teachings. This is the thing I've been waiting for. This is the time for my death and then resurrection to happen. Why does their ethnicity matter? Their ethnicity matters because God has been waiting for the gospel to go forth to every race and every tribe and every tongue. God has been determined not to redeem just one subset of humanity, but to redeem all who would follow him from every part of humanity so they would hear the gospel and so they would believe and they would follow Jesus. And that can't become fully operative until Jesus is crucified. And so now that these guys have come... Jesus says, this is the time. Here we go. Well, if that's who, second question, what? What does Jesus tell these folks? And you really see this starting in verse 24. So if you look at the text, starting in verse 24, Jesus tells them, I am going to go and die. You know, his analogy with a seed falling to the ground and then growing up again to an agricultural people is easily understandable. Jesus begins immediately to talk about his death on the cross. If you skip down to verse 32, he says it's time for the Son of Man to be lifted up. And some people read that and think, oh, is he talking about his glorification, his resurrection? But in this text, no. Look at how the crowd answers him in verse 34 that we'll come back to in a second. 
This is clearly Jesus talking about his coming death, his crucifixion. Jesus says, you want to know what? It's that I'm going to go die. Now, verse 27 cautions us not to think this was easy. I mean, it's, it's easy for us to think about this and say, well, he's God, right? So this can't have been that hard. He knows how this is going to go. But the text reminds us Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. And as a human being, he doesn't want this. He'd much rather take a pass. And this is not just going to be death. It's going to be terrible death. It's not just going to be terrible death. It's going to be grisly and gross and awful. It's not just grisly, gross, and awful. It's going to be the agony of hell itself being poured out on him. As a human being, nobody wants to die at 33 and not on a cross. He'd much rather take a pass. But verse 28, he says, Father, glorify your name. See, Jesus doesn't want to go to the cross as a human, but there's something else he wants even more than to avoid the cross. He wants God's glory. Could I say that if I were facing crucifixion? Now, when this voice comes from heaven, this is not, contrary to what a lot of commentators say, how Jesus gets through this. Christ explicitly tells us the voice isn't for his good. He's already made it through that struggle. This voice is so we can know how it was that Jesus made it through this. Remember that true courage is not a lack of fear. True courage is facing fear and still doing what we ought. And Jesus steps in and says, I want God's glory more than anything. And that completely blows up the religious conception of this crowd. This crowd is still mainly Jews, And they look back at him and they say, what are you talking about? Look, we know what Messiah is supposed to be. These are the folks who have just celebrated his entry into Jerusalem. These are the folks who have waved the palm branches. These are the folks when he first said, now is the time, thought this is it. And in fact, their conception of the son of man, this is not a brand new term to them. If you read literature from outside the Bible at the same time as the New Testament, the Son of Man was a term that was colored by their understanding of particularly Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. And in Daniel 7, Daniel has rehearsed the great empires of the world, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, all the people who've been smashing Israel under their foot. And then he says, I saw one like a Son of Man coming. So one like a human, but with divine power, and that one like a son of man will crush all these other people and restore Israel to what it ought to be. And so when they hear, when they say verse 34, all they're doing is they're reflecting the way people of their time thought they read the Bible, which was they say, wait a minute, Jesus, the Bible says the son of man's never going to die. He's going to live forever. So their question in verse 34, who is this son of man? It's actually not, who are you talking about? They realize Jesus is talking about himself. Their question is, what in the world conception of the Son of Man are you talking about, Jesus? This isn't what we've been taught out of the Bible. Jesus' answer leaves them in total confusion. So let's ask the third question then, why does Jesus answer them this way? Why would Jesus talk about this? Jesus talks about it this way Because when it comes to these Greeks, 
He is determined to give them more than they bargained for. He is determined not just to die for people of his own race, not just to do things for his own people. He is determined to die and save people of every race. He is determined to do good to people who've hated him. He is determined to lay down his life on the cross to save all men and women who will come to him. And so verse 31, if you look at it, says, this is the decisive defeat of the devil himself. Jesus calls him the prince of this world. And he says, the prince of this world is being driven out. Jesus comes to do what we cannot do, but what we cannot live without, which is to defeat evil itself. You know, the Bible says that in fact, there's more going on in this world than just the natural stuff, the stuff that we can feel and see and touch and sense. It says there are also forces that are truly real for good and truly real for evil. And all the evils we face in this world are manifestations of the fact that every man and woman on this planet is in bondage to those forces of evil, whether we know it or not. So all the racism, all the sexism, all the anger, all the difficulty, all the hunger, all the struggle, all the conflict of our world, these things all trace down to forces that Jesus says he has come and conquered them. Not he will someday come back and conquer the devil, but he has already decisively conquered the devil and set us free from bondage. Why does Jesus say this? He says it because we have hope right now in the gospel. We have hope right now that Jesus is making things new. And so look back at verse 32. He says, he will now draw all men to himself. All men to himself. Jesus is not content to just find a few people. He's not content to just do a little bit. He wants to do what we've actually tracked since January as we've done a sermon series in Acts, for the gospel to start with the Jews and go forth to encompass all people. And you know something odd about this passage? Do you recognize we never find out if these guys ever ever got to see Jesus or not? They say we want to see Jesus, and I don't know if they ever did. Because Jesus takes what they say and says, now is the time. And so the final, the most important chapter of his life, but honestly, the final, the most important chapter of world history comes forward where not just they, but all people would see Jesus. And so Jesus does not just let them see himself. In this text, you and I see Jesus. They stand in for all of us. It's everything that the religious leaders feared in verse 19. The whole world is coming to him. And so Jesus says, why? Because I want to save people of every type. Now let me ask this question then. What does that mean to us? What does that do for us? Well, if Jesus did die at just the right time for us, here's what that means. It means it is the right time for us to live for him. If Jesus did die at just the right time for you and me, It means it is the right time for us to live for him. In the Bible, if you've got yours open or if you have one open on your phone or your screen, look at verses 25 and 26. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, 
And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. These verses tell us that Jesus' death and resurrection aren't just an historical fact, they're also a paradigm for you and me. They're a paradigm for our own lives, and let me suggest in two ways. First, Jesus offers us eternal life. Jesus offers us eternal life. You know, these Greeks come, and they're curious to see who he is, and they get so much more than they bargained for. And if you're online this morning, or if you're here in person at one of our sites in Fairfax or in the fellowship hall or here in the sanctuary with me, and you're here for curiosity, or you're here out of pattern or religious ritual, or because you got drug here or forced to tune in, well, God has something so much more than you bargained for. Because I can't promise you many things in this life, but I actually can promise you we will all die. And Jesus says, after that death, there is a new life. He offers us a life to come, a life eternal, a life that's exactly what it ought to be. Now look down at the end of the passage, the verses 35 and 36. Here's what he says there. He says, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so you may become sons of light. Jesus says, now is the time. Today is the day. This day, this week, this month, this year. If you're here and you don't actually have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he says, now is the time. It's not our prerogative to put this off. Jesus says, it's time you walk in the light right now. The light of grace is there for you. Receive it. How do you do that? You do what we've rehearsed in worship. You come to Jesus and you say, I am a sinner. And I need your grace. And I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And I have peace with you because of it. If you don't know how to do that, find us after the service. Or call a Christian friend. Or call the church. We'd love to help you see how to walk from death to life. First, Jesus offers us eternal, eternal life. But second, he also offers us a new life right now. Jesus comes to us and he offers us a new life right now. Look back at verse 25 and verse 26. He says, whoever hates his life in this world. That's strong language, isn't it? Hates in what sense? What does Jesus mean here? Well, when you pair love and hate In the Bible, that's a Semitic idiom that really talks about your fundamental preference. So what Jesus is saying here is not you've got to detest your spouse or your home or your job or your kids or your parents or your school or whatever. He doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean an absolute hate. But what he does mean is that compared to the life in Christ, all those things ought to pale so poorly that it's as if we hated them. So look, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the great things of this world, the beautiful sunset, the high mountains, the wonderful beach, the highest highs of sex, the most wonderful triumphs of work. Enjoy them. They're God's good gifts. Yet, when we look at them in the light of the life to come, they ought to pale to so much nothing that it's as if we would say that we hate those things. Jesus says, don't let those become more than they ought. Instead, verse 26 He says, we ought to lay down our lives 
for each other, that Christ on the cross ought to become a model for us. Now, most likely not for you and me in this country in a literal sense, but keep in mind that in many parts of the world, this is a literal call that believers heed to go and die for their faith. But even if we don't die for our faith in the physical sense on a cross, we do die for our faith day by day. The great victories of this world are won by people who are really ready to sacrifice even their life. And the little victories of every day and every life together are won by those who are ready to sacrifice even our lives. And so as we come to each other, Christ says, verse 26, follow the model, see what I'm doing, be ready to lay your life down for me. Honestly, here's my big concern. This is the real point I'd like to push towards is we don't do that very much. Christ lays down a model which is empty yourself for others just as he's emptied himself for us. He says, die to yourself for the good of all those that you might save. And and by the way, I'm not throwing bombs at anybody else. I don't see this in myself. We say we want the victory of the cross. We say we want the wonder and joy of eternal life in Jesus. But then we also want everything else about our life to be really good right now. And we want it to go great. And we want it to live big and to sacrifice nothing. I'm concerned that we're spiritually soft. And I certainly mean me myself. And you see it in how we talk about almost everything. How we fight for what we want. What we want in politics. What we want in business. What we want in how our church will regather or not. What we want in terms of how quickly. What we want in terms of who the next senior pastor will be and what he'll sound like what we want more broadly in the kind of music our church has and the way our church feels, to make our church feel just like we want it to, not maybe something that might like welcome these people of a different race. In so many ways, I feel like we fail this test and I, and I include myself as the chief of sinners. Why do we fail it? Honestly, we fail it because we love the wrong things. We fail it because in fact, we love this life a lot more than we love the life to come. You know, I just have to honestly admit that if I look at the way my own life lives out. Too many times I would much rather not sacrifice and not lay my life down for the gospel and let other people do that part. But that's not the model Jesus gives us. That's not what Jesus says here. He says, Just like they treated me, so they'll treat you. He says, where I am and where you also should be. Verse 26, he pushes it pretty hard. He says, penniless, hated by the world, but loved by God. The book of Hebrews says, the world was not worthy of them. So here's the key takeaway. If we have hated our life in this world, then we can't let our stuff and our comfort and our worldly success, including our political success, define the dominant way we approach our faith in Jesus. Jesus just won't let that stand. So here's our question this morning. Are we ready to pick conquest or to pick a cross? Are we ready to pick getting what we want in this life now, or are we ready to pick laying our lives down for the life to come? Because it's when we bury our personal vision that we become of great use of God. So what part of of your and my personal vision do we need to bury? Is it the type of music we use in worship? 
Is it how quickly our church or things get back to normal? Is it the style of the preacher? Is it however chaotic worship is? Is it your personal political viewpoint or whether your company succeeds? Is it whether you get promoted? Is it whether your social standing's secure? Whether you're popular on the playground or in the hall? Whether you get enough likes on your newest post? Jesus might give us those things. And if he does, there's nothing wrong with enjoying them, but they have to so pale beside the kingdom of God that it looks like we despise them all. So what in life do you love the most? Jesus calls us to a new life. Will we put aside everything else and follow him? You know, most of us can't answer that question the way we should. I'm not sure I can. I'm pretty sure far more than often I haven't. But if you feel the weight of that, don't give up because Easter's coming. As we step through this week, we will see Christ killed and by next Sunday risen from the dead and we will experience and feel the grace that's there for us in the gospel that really can make us new people. Let's pray. God, we step into these these truths of the gospel, and we pray that we would be, if anything, a little shaken up by them. We pray that we would be ready to hear the truth of grace in such a way that we realize the unending aspects of your love and the freedom from bondage to this life that it gives us, that you might, in doing that for us, make us new people and free people to our good and to the glory of your name. We pray you do that in Jesus' name. Amen.